Hello, I'm Abram Banningen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. Today, we're taking a close look at George Herbert's great poem, The Caller. Joanne, before we read this poem, maybe we could talk about what brings us to this poem in the first place. Yeah, George Herbert is one of my favorite poets. He was born in 1593. He died in 1633. He was only 39 when he died. And even though he was born into a world of enormous prestige and power, he chose the life of a priest, and he spent his last years of his life in a small church in Bemerton in rural England. And as a poet, he is very well known for his attention to structure and form. He wrote beautiful concrete or visual poems. And then in this poem, The Caller, he has a more haphazard or wayward movement or shape. And really the gist of this poem is a priest who's basically said he's had enough. He wants to walk out the door and leave it behind. The Caller by George Herbert. I struck the board and cried, No more, I will abroad. What? Shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines in life are free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood, and not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? Sure there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it, no flowers, no garlands gay, all blasted, all wasted? Not so, my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made and made to thee good cable to enforce and draw and be thy law, while thou didst wink and wouldst not see. Away, take heed, I will abroad. Call in thy death's head there, tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. But as I raved, and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methought I heard one calling, Child, and I replied, My Lord. Wow, I love your reading of that poem. That was so dramatic. As you were, <laughs> I mean, you know, as you read it, why why is it so dramatic? How did you know how to read it that way? Yeah, I just feel the poet insisting, and his insistence becomes almost too much insistence. I mean, you can even see that in, for example, the fourth line where he says, my lines in life are free, free as the road, this repetition of free. So it's almost like he's too much insisting that he's free. <laughs> really, truly, I'm free. I could walk out the door anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm walking out the door right now. Look at me. Look at me. And I'm closing the door behind me. I'm free. Uh, and at the whole, and the whole time you realize he's not left. He's still at the altar. And what interests me about the way you started your reading of this poem and where you finished, you started with this really defiant kind of bombast. And by the end of the poem, your voice had lowered a bit. It was a quieter ending. And uh, Barbara Harmon has written up, she wrote about this years ago, the ways in which Herbert creates collapsing poems, poems that fall in on themselves. Mm. And I'm really interested in that idea of literal or metaphorical 
collapse because this is a poem from George Herbert's one book of poems that he ever collected called The Temple. And that's a really useful title to be aware of because George Herbert is always thinking about architecture, the architecture of his soul, of his spirit, of the church, and all of mm -hmm. the relationships that sustain or create fragility in those architectures. And I feel like The Caller is one of those poems that shows a kind of collapse. It goes from defiance and outrage and wildness into being very subdued. There's a way in which Herbert writes his lines that allow us as readers to hear that drama and know how to perform it. Mm -hmm. So the poem begins, just even just looking at the title, just something as simple as the title already gives us so much information, right? We know that titles are really ways in which poets can prepare us for the tensions and excitements of a poem. So this is The Caller, C-O-L-L-A-R. So when I hear collar, I think of something that one might wear around one's neck. I think of it as a kind of restraint in some ways, but there are other layers to that word as well, right? Yeah, so also during this age, collar was the word for anger. It was, a, it was one of the humors in the theory they had of the body. And so if you had too much collar, you were too angry. It's a sort of pun on saying the anger as the title. So it's both the, the yoke of restraint around his neck, but also the anger that is against that yoke, against that restraint. And one other sort of pun on that is the collar, like C-A-L-L-E-R, the collar, the person who's calling out. And then this response that he's hearing in the end, or at least that he thinks that he's hearing in the end. So maybe we should talk about how we get there by kind of walking through the poem from the beginning, starting with those first lines. I struck the board and cried, no more, I will abroad. I love this opening because you could, you could picture him there at the altar and just slamming his fist down and saying, what am I doing here? Enough with this. I feel like Herbert is always playing with language and little tricks of language. And it's almost as though when he strikes the board, that word board jumbles up and becomes the word abroad. <laughs> I will abroad. No more. I will abroad. And then that next word in the next line, what? As though, as though having just said this out loud, the congregation is really surprised and looks up at him, right? And he says, what? Shall I ever, you know, sigh and pine? Shall I just sit here sighing and pining my life away? My lines mm -hmm. in life are free, free as the road. What do you see happening in those plays on the kind of sounds of the words themselves? Look at the way he creates that assonance. Shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines and life are free. Are they free though? He feel, It seems like he wants to be free, but the lines are still keeping him bound in some way, even as they have some waywardness and irregularity to them, you know? Absolutely. So if you hear him say, I'm free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store, and yet the things rhyme and fit, then you realize it's not quite as loose as the wind. He's not quite as free as the road. And exactly how free is a road anyway? Yes. <laughs> and so, and then he comes to this line, shall I be still in suit? And I feel like that's one of these sort of key questions here in this poem. Should I still be waiting on you, God? Should I still be standing here serving you when I could just walk out the door and serve myself. Okay, and also, what is the nature of the relationship with God? So that's a big struggle in this poem. Mm -hmm. And in these early lines, his that is a central question. Shall I still be in suit? 
That sets up a metaphor in which God is king and Herbert's poetic speaker is a servant to that king. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a monarchical relationship. By the end of the poem, you have God, or at least what he thinks is the voice of God, referring to Herbert and saying, child, and then he replies, my Lord. So it's a little bit more like a, a father-son relationship by the end of the poem, which is a little more intimate, still respectful, still deferential. He mm -hmm. says, my Lord. But God refers to him as a child. And that's a very powerful shift in the relationship, you know? Well, and it seems like the key there is that if he only conceives of himself as a servant to a king, it becomes impossible to bear this load. But as soon as the king turns out to be your father, then it's that shift in the concept of the relationship that allows Herbert to to accept the fact that he is a servant to this Lord. Well, and, and he is very explicit about how bound he still is, at least in his mind, to some of those more earthly recognitions and acknowledgements. Mm -hmm. uh, if we go down a few lines in this poem... Uh, he's thinking about all that he's lost, all that it takes for him to wait and to serve. Um, and he says, sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers, no garlands gay, all blasted, all wasted, Oh my God, these lines are so sad. And so here, the re the reason I love those lines is those bays are the bay leaves of the, the laurel wreath that a, a great poet would wear. Mm -hmm. And so he's saying, am I living this life and getting no recognition for the value of my poetry? Well, that's not an appropriate question for him to be asking, right? <laughs> and yet he, and yet he's going there. <laughs> yeah, there is a shift or an attempt to shift his thinking and feeling in this poem. Right after those lines that I just read, all blasted, all wasted, not so, my heart. But there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made and made to thee good cable to enforce and draw and be thy law, while thou didst wink and wouldst not see. Wow, that's a lot of information. How do yeah. you how do you read <laughs> what what's happening to him in those lines? Well, it's interesting because up until that moment, you just have the sheer rebellion, like forget this, I'm out of mm -hmm. here. And then you have this sort of more measured voice of counsel. Some people call it a voice of rebellion, a voice of counsel. But the counsel is very odd because it's not counseling him back into his Christian duty. It's not a voice that re opposes the rebellion. To me, it reads more like a voice of reason for the rebellion. Mm. Double the pleasures in order to make up for lost time. Mm. Recover all thy side-blown age on double pleasures. Leave this dispute, leave all this thinking about what's fit, what's not, what can I do, what can't I do. That All of that is what he calls a rope of sands. Your thoughts are making a law for you. Your law is caging you in. Just leave it. That's how I read those lines. How do you read those lines? I love these lines because they're so psychological. 
And I love how many voices are within the poetic speaker in this poem. And so as we look at each of these sentences in fits and spurts, some are exclamations, some are questions that sound outraged, some of them are more meditative, and it's the speaker kind of battling with himself and trying to understand how in some ways he's created his own condition. Yeah, and right after those lines of sort of meditative counsel, he says, away, take heed, I will abroad. And what I love about those lines is he's not yet abroad. <laughs> he's, he's, he's talking himself into this. I mean, he's so fed up with his service in the church, and yet he's still trying to convince himself to leave. And then we come back to this more meditative, measured voice. Call in thy death's head there. Tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. Wow, deserves as a verb there is really interesting and powerful. How do you read those lines? So first of all, I think it's worth saying just what a death's head is. Mm. So in this day and age, you would sometimes bring in a, a skull so that you would look at it and think about your own mortality. And that's supposed to turn your mind from temporal things to eternal things. Right now, he says, tie up thy fears. Call in that skull. Take a look at it. All right, tie up your fears and be done with it. And then he says, he that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. He that refuses to serve his own needs deserves what he gets. If you're going to keep forestalling your own pleasures, putting them off, well, then you deserve what you get. And the serve uh, becomes deserves in the next line. Wow. Yeah, the, the alignment between serving and deserving. And then the way the poem ends, it's so dramatic. But as mm -hmm. I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, me thoughts I heard one calling, child. And I replied, my Lord, this poem, I can't think of any poem from the 16th or 17th century that is more like dialogic than this one, right? It has so many voices yeah. in it. It has what might be God's voice. Um, it certainly has multiple voices battling within the poetic speaker. It's so dynamic, no? Yeah. And, you know, part of the effect of the ending here is that all of these lines that have come in and gone out that are sometimes eight syllables, sometimes 10 or 12, sometimes six, four, whatever. Suddenly at the very end, we get these four very measured lines, a long line, a short line, a long line, a short line, with rhymes that go basically A, B, A, B. And so part of the effect of the poem is again built into this form or structure of the poem. After he's tried out all these random rhymes and random line lengths, at the very end of the poem, everything becomes measured. Mm. And part of that measuring of those lines is producing the effect of a sense of calming him down. Uh, oh, that's great, right? And, there, and there's that collapse that loud volume just it just vanishes entirely by the end. And that child, methought I heard one calling child. It's in italics with an exclamation mark. But you can imagine a, a reader hearing that any numbers of ways, right? So mm. it could be a very soft calling out. Or it could be a harsh rebuke. But I get the sense that it's just like... I've had this with my own children, right? Where they're just, they've lost their mind about the <laughs> simplest thing, right? Like, we are having tortellini tonight! <laughs> and you just look at them, and it's sort of like a smile, just like, child, right? Uh, it, it, it's just like, it's it's okay. It's all right. And it's it's almost as if it's the Lord accepting the raving as all right. It's all right. 
it's okay. I understand why you're raving like this. Mm. Uh, I understand that you need to do this. But look, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And actually, true freedom resides in the service to it and not in trying to leave it behind. That is really nice. Uh, that You walking me through the use of that one word, child. It's so affectionate. It's so patient. And it's so honest in its acknowledgement of the difficulty. Shall we read this poem again? Yes. The caller. I struck the board and cried, no more. I will abroad. What, shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines and life are free, free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Shall I be still in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn to let me blood, and not restore what I have lost with cordial fruit? Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it, there was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers? No garlands gay? All blasted? All wasted? Not so, my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy sigh-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made, and made to thee good cable, to enforce and draw, and be thy law, while thou didst wink and wouldst not see. Away, take heed, I will abroad. Call in thy death's head there, tie up thy fears. He that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, Methoughts I heard one calling, child, and I replied, my lord. So good. Thank you. Thank you for reading it. You can learn more about George Herbert and see the text of this poem on the Poetry for All website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. 